Alright, so good to see everybody tonight. The big day, finally upon us. Christmas is here. And you know, we hear that word Christmas. It's one of those things that sometimes conjures all sorts of images in our mind. And I think even if we're the type of people who took a little time out of this busy season to set foot in a church, we still sometimes cannot grasp what it is that we actually celebrate this time of year at Christmas. So I want us to focus instead tonight on a different word, the incarnation. Now, when you hear that word, the first thing you probably think is, that sounds like one of those churchy words, right? But it's actually probably the perfect word to convey the magnitude of what it is that we actually celebrate tonight. Because the incarnation means God the Son taking on flesh and becoming a man. It's quite remarkable when you think of it that way. Now why is it that God would do something like this? Well, in our text for tonight, we're going to find two reasons. First, because He loves you. In fact, Scripture says God is madly in love with you. He has zeal for you. And it's so important that we hear that from time to time. We must know that God loves us. And then second, God became a man because he desires to be in a relationship with you. And think about that for a minute. The creator and sustainer of the universe desires to be in a relationship with you. And... He desperately wants you to know these two things in no uncertain terms, which is why He sent His one and only Son to deliver this two-part message in person. That's how important it was. And that's ultimately what the incarnation that we celebrate tonight is all about. And of course, throughout Advent, we've turned to the Apostle John. And that's not a place most churches look because there's no real nativity scene or anything like that in there. John's just one of those guys that cuts straight to the chase as he writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, as we've learned throughout Advent, the word refers to Jesus because he embodies the totality of the message that God wanted to send to us. And this is no small thing. The word becoming flesh. It's actually cosmic in its implications. Because as John already taught us, before the incarnation, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. And so that means he left his place in communion with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in heaven, a place where he was exalted by all the heavenly hosts in all of his glory. And he transcended the very universe that was created through him by God's spoken word. A universe comprised of seemingly infinite galaxies, nebula, ultraviolet radiation. A universe spanning innumerable miles, hosting unfathomable celestial phenomena. A universe with an explicable Milky Way that he knows every square inch of. Countless asteroids, meteors, comets, even within our own vast solar system, our eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God 
came to the very earth he created. Or as John simply puts it, he became flesh. Meaning the Son of God became fully human. Arriving in the form of a humble baby. Born in a humble manger to a humble peasant family in the little tiny humble town of Bethlehem. So as you can see, the incarnation is far more than just one of those little fancy church words. It's the single greatest event in all of human history. Because in the astounding act of the incarnation, God expresses His desire to dwell among us. Now prior to the incarnation in Old Testament times, God was with His people, but just in a much different way. He was present in a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night in what was called the tent of meeting, which was positioned in the center of wherever it was that the nation Israel set up camp. And as you can see by the graphic up there, while God was with Israel back in the day, He remained at a bit of a distance. But now, John writes, He has dwelt among us. So clearly, something has changed. First, this phrase dwelt among, it means in the company of, or in the midst of, someone, right? And then second, John tells us who this someone is, as he refers to it as us. So John is one of the eyewitnesses who actually spent time with the Son of God while he was on earth. Do you see how much more up close and personal this is than before? God the Son now lovingly looks into their eyes and speaks truth into their ears. And so then John goes on to tell us exactly what he saw. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now up to this point, God's glory could only be observed in a pillar of cloud or fire, or as part of creation maybe. Never before had man ever been able to look into the face of God, let alone take in a first-hand view of God's glory, revealed in the person of His incarnate Son. And we're going to see that God's glory is a key part of the message God desired to convey to us. Now when we check out what this word glory means, in the original language, you find it entails magnificence, excellence, preeminence, majesty, honor, grace. These are all descriptions of the Word, the Son of God. So what John, the apostles, and all the others whom Jesus revealed Himself to got to actually see was God's magnificence, God's excellence, God's preeminence. They were eyewitnesses to His majesty, His honor, His grace. Can you even begin to imagine what that must have been like? It was no doubt humbling, because that's really the only reaction we could ever have whenever we experience God's glory. It humbles us. It fills us with gratitude. And it causes us to respond in praise of His glory. And as we learn this fall, praising and giving thanks are all part of how we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. God absolutely loves it when we respond in gratitude to Him or whenever we praise Him for His glory. 
In fact, Psalm 22 even says that he makes our praise his throne. Now, if that doesn't humble, excite, and make us want to sing with all we've got, I honestly don't know what will. Think about that. He makes our praise his throne. It's incredible. And then John wraps up by explaining in two simple words what comprises God's glory. It's full of grace and truth. And it's in these two words that we find the basis for the loving relationship God desires to have with each and every one of us. First, grace. In the original language, the word means love and joy, both of which come to us with, in the form of unmerited favor, meaning we didn't do anything to earn it. His love is unconditional, and our joy in Him is undeserved. And that's because our sin separates us from our holy God. So there's no justifiable basis for us to experience His love or His joy in our lives all on our own. Rather, it's only out of His abundant grace that He sent His Son to come deal with our sin so that we could experience His love and the joy of being in communion with the very God who created us. And then the second word, truth. In the original language, this word means factual and honest. All that is in step with God's design. You see, God loves us, and He desires to be in a relationship with us, such that we might love Him back. Of course, as we've learned, it's by God's design that love actually requires choice. That's why we have choice in our lives, so that we can choose to love. The Bible makes it very clear. Love is not a feeling. Love is an act of the will. And we all know this to be true, because no matter how hard we've tried, we simply can't make somebody else love us. They have to choose to. That is the truth about how God designed love. And regrettably, far too often, we exercise this free choice that we have in all the wrong ways. We choose self over God. By definition, that's what sin is. When we put ourselves ahead of God, it's what separates us from Him. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So sin simply cannot just be forgotten. It has to be dealt with. Someone has to pay the price for it. And that's why God sent His Son, Jesus, in the flesh to dwell among us. To take on all aspects of humanity. Think about that. He's fully human. He's tempted by sin, but He never gave in to it. So that Jesus might be the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished Lamb sent to pay the penalty for all our sins. His body broken and his blood shed in order to restore us to a loving relationship with his Father. But he doesn't just stop there. He also sent his Holy Spirit to be our ever-present help, speaking truth whenever we can't find it, convicting, counseling, comforting, leading us back home to be in communion with God, now and for all eternity. Do you see now why it's so important that we embrace the magnitude of the incarnation. It's a whole lot more than when we typically celebrate this time of year at Christmas. It's God the Son taking on flesh and becoming a man 
All because God loves you and because God desires to be in a relationship with you. That is the message that he sent his son to deliver in person to his beloved children. So that down to the depths of our souls, we would know our Savior intimately and personally. So that we might be in communion with him now and for all eternity. That is the true meaning of the incarnation. Which is why it's so important that we gather tonight to partake of communion together. The bread and the cup represent Christ's body and his blood. The flesh that he took on, the flesh that was then broken and poured out, all because he loves you and because he desires to be in a relationship with you. So let's take a few moments in the quiet of our hearts to thank God for all that he's done for us, for all of his grace and for all of his truth. Oh Lord, our sin is ever before us, a constant reminder of our need for a Savior. You are our God and we are your people. And we thank you for loving us. We thank you for desiring a relationship with us. And we thank you for sending your son to deliver this message in person, taking on flesh to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only and our souls shall be healed. Amen. Amen.